Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial and data storytelling. Uh, as always, brought to you by the awesome people at Cathcart Technology, recruitment experts and lovely people, and our latest sponsor, Infer, um, a data analytics company who are changing the game when it comes to how companies get insight uh, from their data, essentially, um, and all using SQL. Today's episode, I am really excited to be speaking to Rachel Purchase, Head of Data, Product, Insights and Data Science um, at the Admiral Group. Uh, welcome, Rachel. Hi. We've been chatting about this for a while, I think. Like, well, I don't know. We've talked on and off about doing the podcast, but like, it's been something that we've both been keen to do, right? It is. I've been listening to lots of your podcast episodes, so I've uh, been keen on on being a guest for a while. And I figured if I just posted about it enough, eventually, eventually it would happen. There was a kind of weird hiatus period of like six months. Otherwise, I'm sure it would have happened. It would have happened before. So yeah, if you've listened to some episodes, you know we always kick off on on kind of education. For you, that involves a bachelor's degree at Cardiff University in maths and stats, right? So. I suppose the immediate thought I had when I wrote that down was it's quite a good background for data science, but I am assuming you didn't know that at the time. I had no idea at the time of what I wanted to do. I very much chose maths because it seemed like the sensible choice. You think there's a, a whole load of options you can go into from maths, but with very, very little idea of what I wanted. And very little idea even you know a few years out of university really it was just very much potluck I think how I ended up here but maths is a good grounding like you say I mean it teaches you mostly to be honest I mean about a lot of the logic and the problem solving and all of that stuff is the bit that I find the most useful from the degree yeah I remember I think it was like the very first man came out meetup we did but someone had posted that like most data science is just maths and stats from 50 years ago or whatever, but with more computing power. Like, is, is that still fair today, actually? Like, that's like six years later, seven years later? I think it's probably all still fair, isn't it? It's a, it's a lot of maths and, and a lot of computer science together. I will probably get into it a bit later, but the actually one of the things with my degree is that I think I was not the best mathematician, if we put it that way. So... In, in some ways, I loved it. So I loved maths going through school, going through my A-levels. But then when you get to university level maths, it gets very, very theoretical. And actually, I'm much happier with practical application. You're much happier in the world of statistics or operational research than, say, pure mathematics. And so I'm probably not the person to talk about exactly how all of that links behind the scenes. I just love making stuff happen with it that's fair and then one of the reasons that we are, are that i would say we like it's some sort of grand production one of the reasons that i like to go into education background is that there was a kind of theory or not a theory but like a kind of consensus in the industry maybe like 2015 or so that like to be a data scientist you needed a phd right and it feels like that's disappeared a little bit now but when you were going into admiral and we'll start about that journey shortly but and I, I ended up in a data science world did anyone ever mention the fact like like do you need a phd or you need a you need whatever or was it more that you'd been in the company and kind of understood the problems and you were obviously capable nobody mentioned it and but i'll explain i'll explain why because i think it's probably quite important to the answer which is that when we started in data science pre me joining 
data science, but it started very much as an R&D capability. We had some incredibly clever people. It sort of sat separately to everything else we did in data back then, and because it was very much a, we think this is a thing we really need to look at, let's do it over here. And again, some super clever people, some of which are still there today, but they hadn't necessarily got the business context, so they didn't really understand how to apply data science into the business. And you'd get to a situation where they would come up to you, they'd have this brilliant model that looked great on paper, and then you'd realize that, oh, you're using a variable to predict this thing, but we don't capture that variable until after that that thing you're trying to predict in the process. So it's just circular and it doesn't work. And so my role really from day dot going into data science was not to be the best data scientist, but was to be that bridge. So to say, let's take this team and actually let's take the business knowledge and, and the data knowledge and bring them together and then actually get these things into production. So when I joined that team in 2016, they'd been running for a couple of years, but they hadn't got any models over the line into production. And then when I joined that first year, we got two across into production in 16 and then 12 in 17. So we really ramped it up quite quite quickly from there. It's like, it's the perfect story for that exact time of like the data science, like boom, if you like, around 2015, 16, where companies did have super talented people in R&D or separated from the business, or they didn't really understand what the business did or like how they made money or like whatever it might be. There were so many examples when I was in recruitment back then that they hired a single data scientist and kind of after maybe 12 or 18 months where everyone was scratching their heads thinking like, why is this not done anything? (laughs) Um, So it's it's really interesting that you've kind of went in more from the business and been able to say like, yeah, we don't capture that variable or that actually doesn't work in our business. Like something like that is so useful yeah and it didn't stop me from feeling like an absolute fraud to your point because I was definitely the least educated person in that group and the person who just asked all of the what felt like stupid questions you know and you have to sort of go oh I've got another one I don't understand this can you can you dub it down for me um but it worked and and we got there so I suppose it was uh, all all right in the end I remember the second ever episode of this Maybe the first and second. I was talking, I used to ask people like what they saw the next trend in the industry in terms of job titles, like would chief data officer become more prevalent, blah, blah, blah. One of the things I said on the second episode um, was I thought there was a gap in the market for like a data science business analyst. And that's kind of like you came in from the business and an analyst position. And like you said, you asked all of those questions like to make them really think about stuff. It was kind of like that in a way, like and that, that obviously that job title never took off, but um, like you need someone who's got the business context to then go ask everything and not just assume that the model's like super like slick or fast or whatever. It's interesting because we don't call it that, but we have this sort of two-pronged career path, if you like, for data science within Admiral now today. So there's the the standard one. So, you know, it's technical. You can join as a grad data scientist and you can go all the way up to our chief data scientist position. But then there's also a split whereby we take the people who are better at that stuff and more want to go into that kind of management, that business engagement side, the stakeholder relationships. And we have a, a second path, which we actually call... Um, so like the analytics management path. 
and and we very much split in those two functions. So the analytical the analytics managers manage the data scientists. They do the stakeholder relationship. They act as that bridge, uh, but they also still come with a a whole bunch of data science knowledge for themselves as well. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a better way to do it than what I suggested. We've, and we've already talked about it, but obviously you work at Admiral. I can definitely say this is the first time ever on the show we've had someone that's worked at the same place their entire career. Or maybe we've had someone that like founded a company after like a little bit or whatever, but they hadn't done, they hadn't worked for very long. But you've worked there since graduation, right? You went straight in as a, a pricing analyst and you've worked your way up into the role you're in now. But I suppose going back to graduation you said you didn't really know what you wanted to do maths was kind of like a broad choice how did then admiral come around so it's a really terrible story in some ways because it'll just demonstrate how lazy i am but um back way back when uh we were you know looking for jobs i think things are getting better now in in the recruitment space but back then when i was looking for my job it was kind of you know you had all of these grad schemes and it was there's seven stages to this process or you know you have to do all these different things and and then admiral came in so um, Rodri Charles who was my manager for a long time he came into the university and he did this presentation and he said to apply you just send me a cv and then we do an interview and that's it and I was like okay <laughs> this this sounds about a million times better than every other pitch that we've seen and so I just did that. Um, they, you know, literally just emailed him over my CV, had one interview and then got the job offer and stopped applying after that. Cause I was like, well, that's done. It's in the bag. I've got a job for after graduation, but never expected to stay because it was almost too easy. My thought process at that time was I'll just do it for a year. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to worry about, you know, job hunting while doing exams and so on. And then, yeah, somehow that turned into 14 years later and I'm, I'm still here. That was uh, exactly the same way I got my first job in recruitment because I looked at all like the like KPMG and PwC like schemes and it was like full day assessments followed by 26 interviews with 40 different people. <laughs> and I was like, I don't really want to do that. And then yeah. one of my friends had got a job in recruitment and he was like, yeah, I just met like the owner of the company and they offered me the job. And I was like, well, that sounds better. Um, and uh, do you know what? You said recruitment's got better. There's definitely still, especially in tech, like a weird like overcomplication of how to hire people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a really good story. But, yeah, so you started at Admiral in kind of pricing, um, pricing analytics. Um, and I'm sure like back then, and even today, I'm sure it's still true, but that's just, there's so much data involved. Like, so day one and your first job at Admiral, like you're already consumed by data, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pr pricing is one of the best jobs in terms of data because it, it, particularly in an insurance landscape, because of course, what we're trying to do in insurance is predict how likely you are to claim from us. And if you do claim, what the expected cost of that claim is. And that's just a pure data problem. And because from the point that I've been in Admiral, at least, it's always been, you know, an internet business. It's always been very price comparison driven. So, you know, the huge amounts of data to play with, like some simple numbers, like if we have something in the region of you know, 75 million quotes a month just from our sort of car book of business alone. So it's it's a it's a phenomenal place to play with data. And yeah, pr a pricing analyst is basically a data analyst who's 
just focused on on that risk prediction part. Yeah, no, that is when you think about the just pure volume of it, it's actually quite terrifying. Um, and I actually only just realised right the second I woke up to an email from Admiral this morning about my renewal quote. So someone in the pricing team has looked at my renewal quote at some point and must have known I was coming on. But no, the uh, it's kind of like because people in the past we've had them on the podcast like the kind of they might be called a data scientist now but they worked in some sort of like finance heavy banking background and i feel like insurance and pricing is kind of similar in terms of like almost early adopters of data science almost if that makes sense just because there's there's so much data so you have to do something with it yeah exactly that very much so i mean so, you know, I like I said, I joined fourteen years ago. We were using regression models then in rating plus our other approach, which we don't talk about. It's super secret, uh, but it's a you know it's always been a data business. It's always been a data game. You can't do it without, and, and not just from a a pricing point of view, but even just you know, if you think about the claims process, you think about the customer contact, you think about marketing. All of it is basically a pure data business, really. And I hadn't really thought about this question, but in the, it doesn't have to be in the, in the whole 14 years, but like, if you think about the earlier days of like using those regression models and using that data, is the, what's been like the biggest change in terms of how you approach the data? Like, is it purely that the technology's got better or something else? Great question. So I think, what I'll do actually is talk about sort of some of the next steps and I think it'll help answer the question as well. Yeah, so I did pricing for um, a little while and did it on the motorbook. So really we, when I joined, we were predominantly a car insurer and we went into telematics, which is the you know devices in the car. They transmit data every single second that somebody is driving. So again, like a phenomenal amount of data that is created and that really was one of the key tipping points for us because it turned us from a world where actually we could do some regression and we could do some of our traditional approach to pricing and it all worked pretty well because the data, whilst it was big, you know, it's your kind of standard tabular type of data is a sort of a set data set primarily that you're getting in. And it was very well understood data. And then you get into the world of telematics and you go, ah, this is a bit of a different beast. All of a sudden, we've got this kind of per second telemetry data that is very different. What do we do with it? And that was one of our first sort of steps into thinking about data that was was really very different and different techniques, thinking more about some of those more advanced techniques in data science that, you know, it's much it lends itself much better to things like neural networks than perhaps our, our classic data did. And so... Really, I think to answer your question is that over over time, it's really just become even more data and some of that more unstructured or, you know, that type of world where the per second data, because it, it's not wide. So if you imagine it like a table, you haven't got many features, but you've got an enormous amount of entries because it's just generating that content every every second. Those things need different techniques. So. The fundamentals of what we do have been the same the whole time I'm there, but we've almost added to to that core to just deal with this complexity, both in terms of volume, both in and, and technique. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've got a really dumb question: the telematics that you can get from cars, like, do Admiral and other insurers just have agreements in place with like certain like 
car manufacturers to get that data? Like, how do you get it? Uh, so, so we get it primarily through a product. So we sell a product that essentially gives the customer a, oh, a discount. You can, yeah, 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 yeah. A little box in your car, and like it will like send it back, and yeah. you get cheaper insurance and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and, exactly. And I think some places, if you're a certain age, like you have to have it now, right? Or not have to, but some insurers won't insure you without it, type thing. Yeah, we we don't do that. It's always a choice, but it does save you. A, you know, a significant amount if you're willing to do it and to, to have that so yeah. Yeah, but we well, don't force it that makes a lot more sense than yeah because when you said that so i wonder how they get it all um there, there is a school of there is a world trying to do that but it's quite difficult to make the business model work with I'm, I'm sure i'm assuming as well some of the data is just not that interesting right so like having it as an addition like and being able to choose what you want would be good but if that was your entire company there's probably quite a lot of relatively useless data within that kind of, like you said, minimal features. So yeah, we we just touched on that. You went from pricing into, well, also fraud and data science kind of more, uh, well, head of data analytics, so kind of covering pricing, fraud, telematics, data science generally. And you kind of mentioned that already that you kind of came into this team of almost siloed R&D data science with no models in production, quickly made that a couple and then you said like 17 models um so that must have been quite an interesting journey to suddenly like look at i suppose a much broader data set like it was there was lots of things for you and the team to look at quite fun though i would have thought lots of fun the whole thing is fun isn't it any any data problem i think is the definition of, of fun as long as you can get hold of the data and play with it and if um, you can solve it surely an unsolvable data problem must be like your worst nightmare there's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's where I was going. Is there any such thing as something that's unsolvable? I mean, I mean, there are, right? We've had things that don't end up going because you go, um, in order to do this process or impact this process in this way, we need it to be X level of accurate. And if you can't meet that, then, it, you know, we do get to a point where we don't actually implement models in that scenario. But actually, you've still learned a huge amount of stuff along the way and you're still better informed about what it is that you're trying to do whether that's actually we can't do this because we need to um, buy some more capability or because we need to get more data or because we're not capturing the data in the right way or maybe because actually you're setting the bar too high but all of that stuff I mean it's, it's just about learning and then reevaluating as you go along until you get something that is an improvement for that business area. It's probably a thing that the types of companies I talked about in 2016-17 where they expected quicker results that they probably f didn't appreciate that like experimentation is a huge part of data science like it's not always gonna end up in production like there's gonna be lots of experimentation lots of learnings lots of but like you could class them as failings but like you said you'll, you'll take something from it and eventually it will become good but yeah there was probably lots of companies that maybe weren't prepared for that yeah it, it is a bit of a mind shift isn't it because there's there's not that much else you know particularly because people i think sometimes quite closely associate data with engineering or with it that yeah. and that's much more you know do a do b get c and it's just absolutely not like that and so there is that level of understanding of you have to do experimentation we can't give you particularly fixed deadlines on when exactly we will have will have cracked this and it's yeah, but I think people are are aware of that these days. 
And that actually leads on quite nicely. So you, as well as doing all the stuff you were doing and kind of the pricing fraud, telematics, data science, you moved everything from, or, or in the, still in the process, I think, of moving everything from kind of totally on-prem to Google Cloud. Um, and also within that, introduced kind of tribes and squads. And you mentioned there about people comparing it to kind of engineering and IT and the, the fixed processes. Were the tribes and squads, so did you have data scientists put into a squad of like a product manager, a software engineer, like a head of delivery, like that that model? Yeah, so let me explain that bit a little bit because so what happened is that I was working in, um, I had a hybrid pricing and data science role. So I was working, um, still looking after telematics pricing, but also had moved into data science to start to start getting some of these models across. And in 2018, had really the, the sort of the turning point really for, for my career, which was uh, our CEO, so Christina Nastares, took me aside and said, yeah, there's a disconnect here with data. There's some things that aren't working and we want IT and the business to work much closer together. And said, you're the business and uh, this guy called Wayne Ellis, uh, he, he said the same pitch to him, but you're IT, and he was our sort of chief architect at the time. I want you to work together, and and I want you to solve this data problem. And it was as simple as that, really. I mean, it completely transformed my career in, a, in like a 10-minute conversation. But we basically then started with a blank sheet of paper, put together a really small team that we called DNA. And they at that point, we had about 15 people that we'd taken from different parts of the organization, from data science, data analysts, software engineers, cloud engineers, et cetera, brought them into a single team. And really, I mean, we were incredibly lucky. It was one of the most fun times in my career because we had the buy-in from Christina and from the execs. But we didn't. Re- we had complete autonomy to just solve this problem, and so we really started with that blank sheet of paper, went through the process that we think this needs to be cloud, and then just really built it from that into what it is today. And today, now, what started as that very small sort of team and, and that challenge that was thrown to us is now a 170 strong data engineering tribe with GCP as our um, strategic platform of choice. So we're not 100% there yet, but we're we're significantly through that a significant way through that journey. We very much started saying we want to do the whole end to end. So we don't want to just bring data in and and it has nowhere to go. We want to do we want to bring the data in. We want to do the analytical capabilities, so all of the tools that your analysts or data scientists might be using. And we want to be able to close the loop. So that means deploying machine learning models or just having you know, the, the things that you're creating ending up in, say, a case management system. So, for example, if, you, if we stick with telematics, just because it's a nice, easy thing for people to visualize, somebody has um, an event that we're concerned about that the, the box has recorded that gets sent over to us instantly from our suppliers that then gets streamed through our um, you know, logic and models to say, hey, we think this is a high-risk driving event, and then lands into a case management systems for our handlers to pick up and say, is this something we need to be concerned about here? Do we need to contact the customer, et cetera? And that all happens in the space of about 30 seconds in, in the platform. So 
we really wanted to work across the breadth of that because I think prior to this happening, we'd been very much in the place that you know, different teams had different parts of it. It was a little bit of handoff dependencies and wasn't particularly agile. And I've gone off on a massive tangent from your original question, but to answer your original question, it is structured very much in um, squads. So we've got, I have now today, I have all of the product teams. So I have the product owners, the product leads, et cetera. And they determine the priority, the work, they're the face off to the business. And then we have the engineering teams um, structured in that squad and, and tribe model. And is there, because I, I remember having a conversation with someone at a, um, like marketplace, like car selling marketplace, and they'd done that as well. And some of the data scientists struggled because they were often the only data scientist in their squad. And then also everyone was working to these two week sprints. And like we just said, with experimentation and stuff like that's not always plausible as a data scientist. Like, did you come up against those types of challenges or was it not just not quite the same, Admiral? No, we do. And so we don't. Just to be really clear about it, our data scientists now today sit outside of that. So they sit, they don't work in those two week sprints. They don't sit within the, the tribe. What they do sometimes is that they go in to the tribe, mainly if there's a need to help with the implementation side of it. So it's really when we brought the data scientists in then, it was more about what tools do you need to make you more effective as a data scientist and how can you help us deliver those? What do we need to actually get these models into production and bringing that knowledge that they had about how the system worked as opposed to build a data science model within the squad. That experimentation bit still sits outside. That makes sense. Um, And I'm assuming within that piece of paper with you and the chief architect and the CEO at the time, was it almost like you could, it was like a bit of a shopping list of like, I get to, decide what our data stack looks like yeah I mean it was it was wild when you think about it I'm not sure quite how it happened but um it was great too so we we very much like you said started the blank sheet of paper went through looked at all of our different options and also looked at what we wanted to achieve because data is so vast within Admiral that we could have taken it in lots of different ways. And so what we did, um, when you see in LinkedIn, when it talks about pricing data science fraud in that job, is that we very much focused on those things as the areas that we wanted to deliver for. So we wanted to go the whole way through the stack, like I said, so that we were actually delivering end value, not just generating data. But we couldn't do that in any reasonable time frame for the entire business. So we focused on the highest value areas that were, that were generating value for Admiral within the data space. And then we looked at what they needed and then we built the and agreed the tech stack based on their requirements. And now what we're doing, the st- where we are now is going, right, well, we now want to level the playing field. So we're now rolling that same tech stack out across the rest of the organization. Nice. Um, and it might not have been, well, I'm assuming it wasn't entirely your decision anyway, but out of interest, was there a... a kind of big selling point of why GCP kind of won out as opposed to others, or did it just seem to fit the needs that you guys had at the time? It's a, it's another of my favorite stories. So uh, I'll, uh, and another one that features Christina, actually, she might kill me if she hears this podcast. So we had, um, like I said, up until that point, had loads of good stuff happening in data, and we always have done. So we've always been a data company, but we had had a few sort of missteps, a few things that we'd started that hadn't quite come to fruition. And we went to her and said, right, we've got a plan. We know it needs to be cloud. 
what we're going to do is we're going to you know spend sort of the next four or five months doing some proof of concepts with each of the cloud vendors and deciding and, and making this really um, key decision. And her response was, I don't want you to do that. Um, we already use Azure in parts of the business for other things, just use Azure. And we went away, went back to the team, and it was quite clear that that wasn't wasn't going to be a great message to send to the team, you know, after bringing this team together and going, here's this blank sheet of paper to, to dictate a decision like that wasn't right. And to be honest, that wasn't what she wanted either. What she wanted was for us to just be quicker. She didn't want to actually choose the technology that we were using. So we went back to her and said, okay, give us two weeks. We'll do it. We'll do the POCs, but we'll do them in two weeks. And then we went to the cloud vendors and said, right, you have, these are, you have two days. These are the things that we want to do. We took the entire team and we basically sat in their, in their offices and said, we don't want you to do it and show it us in a pretty demo. We want you to get our engineers to do it because that's the, the, the proof, right, is if we can do it for ourselves. And we did that with Azure and we didn't get to the end of our list of things that we wanted to achieve in the two days. And we did that with GCP and like the morning of the second day we were finished and we had nothing else on our list and we were looking around going, crap, what else can we ask them to do? And then we got the team to vote after that when we were back in in Cardiff and we said, right, you know, what's the decision? And it was unanimous that everybody wanted to go GCP. And so we just went back to Christina and said, we've made the decision. Um, it's going to be GCP. That's amazing. I really like that story. And then kind of recently, or it was like summertime, so not that recent, but your role changed again a little bit and BI and kind of MI are under your remit now as well. So did that just make sense to bring the rest of data, if you like, kind of in a more centralized way or, or how did that come about? Yeah, so it it's changed quite a few times, actually. And it's one of the things I love about Admiral and the reason I've stayed is that nothing ever stands still. Even if you even if you have the same job title, things change all the time, which is great. Uh, but what's happened, I guess, is that we so when I describe DNA and how we started, we very much started almost outside of the our sort of standard operating model across the business. So we were kind of this standalone unit. And then as we got bigger, it became and it became clear that this was going to work and this was going to be the long-term direction. What we did is we aligned that back into our our normal structure. So you know, up until that point with DNA, like I'd had all of the reporting lines, for example, for the engineers and so on. But in the long term, that wasn't going to make sense. So we moved those then back into formally report through IT. And then I picked up the data scientists again. And then, um, like you say, recently, the sort of some of our sort of central BI teams. We're not a central service of data, though, within Admiral. So what we have is a sort of a hub and spoke model. So across the whole of the business, we've got about 650 people in the data community. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a small operation. It's, uh, it's pretty sizable. And then in my sort of direct reporting line, if you like, I've got about 120 that sit centrally. Then in the sort of engineering space, that engineering team is about 170 strong. And again, that's a central engineering team that we do sort of all the prioritization, et cetera, for. But then the rest of that community is satellite teams that sit out around the business. 
Yeah, no, that's super interesting, and it does make sense. And I suppose it would be hard to have a centralized function of six hundred people. <laughs> it'd be really tricky, wouldn't it? And also, but it probably just wouldn't. It might not be very harmonious if you tried to make that happen as well. And it's interesting because I've got a note here to ask about how to get business buy-in, or like if there's anything you've learned from being admiral for so long about kind of the business context. But you, you already brought it up a little bit, like on your first foray into data science was like ask those business questions and like kind of make the data science team realize what's important but i suppose also you've mentioned your ceo a couple of times and the fact that admiral itself are super bought into data so like that probably makes the job of like data managers a little bit easier at admiral than maybe other companies where execs don't get it is that fair yeah no absolutely i feel incredibly lucky really to do it at admiral because everybody universally understands the value of data and why it's important to our business and why it's such a key part of our business. So it, it makes that job so much easier. If anything, the issue that we have is that there's too much demand and then it's trying to slow that down so that we don't end up with you know, lots of different things happening in different ways and we're not reusing the same capabilities. You know, we end up with issues sometimes where with all the right intentions, you people sort of want to go off and do things and they get super excited and they don't realise that over here that capability is already built and they just need to plug into it and, and things like that. But in a way, that's a really great problem to have because it means that everybody's bought into data and it's easy to get stuff through. Is there a prioritisation, when I say issue, I don't mean issue, but like become difficult when like the CFO comes at the same time as the chief marketing officer and they've all got these wild new ideas for data and like you and the rest of the data team are kind of like well we're already backs to the wall or like we're doing something business critical like is there a, do you have to sometimes juggle it the opposite way to other companies where like you've almost got to slow people down in terms of their enthusiasm so sometimes though we've changed um within the last year what we've done is we've changed the structure a little bit so we've aligned to what we call the value streams so uh, we have five value streams that now operate across the business and the data people, even if they sit centrally or in the satellite teams, are actually all aligned into those verticals. So it makes it easier because then your conversation is you can reprioritize within your vertical or you can put more money into your vertical rather than necessarily needing to be in the position where, like you say, you're, it's the CFO and the CMO trying to decide between them. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose you need it at the size and scale of Admiral because otherwise, yeah, you would just be like, you'd be getting bribed as the head of data by everyone else to do this, <laughs> do their stuff first. Um, oh, maybe we should do that. I'll, I'll take some bribes. That sounds great. Take out for lunch. I suppose, though, if someone didn't have buy-in from a business in a role like yours, it almost feels like you could listen to a lot of the things you've already said, but like you, as a, as a data science team, you chose like pricing, claims and fraud, right? as like yeah. the kind of three main pillars. And I suppose the reason to do that without getting into the, the nitty gritty of like exactly why, but it's all about return on investment for the business, right? Like pricing and pricing is huge because it's how you decide how to charge customers. Claims obviously was is a multi-million pound business. Um, and you don't want to be getting like, you want to spot trends and fraud. So like if a, if a company, if a person was listening to this and they were thinking, how do they get buy-in? Would you say like, find something where there's like a monetary value if it's a saving a making whatever yeah ex exactly that so find something where it there's value 
but also it's relatively easy to do. So, you know, and I think this is the common thing that everybody says, isn't it? But you have to really start from a place of trust and quality. And that's why you need to find something that's easy. But you also have to be honest about your capacity and your capability. And I think that's where a lot of people do fall down is because in any business you can go in, it's super exciting. There's about a million different opportunities and it's easy to get carried away with that narrative. But actually, it's much better to show people that they can trust you and that they're going to get a quality product, even if it's not the all singing, all dancing version that you're going to end up iterating to. Yeah. And it's maybe not even cutting edge machine learning. It's maybe something a little bit predictive that is useful for them. Like they don't, because I suppose they don't care really like what's under the hood. I suppose maybe now it's different. Because remember like, because everyone's so into all the different like applications of machine learning now, like we find it quite a lot when we're doing demos with non-data science people ask us what models are driving like what we're doing. And like, it's cool that they're interested, but like it, it doesn't really matter in a way. But people are interested. So I suppose you've got to get used to answering those types of questions when you work in data science now. You see a lot of it, don't you? Like everybody is much more aware of it. And I think part of it is that they see a lot of vendor presentations and so on where that's a key selling point. And therefore, if they see one that isn't, it's kind of going, oh, well, will this be as good? Do I need to check you're able to do this type of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Although we're going to come on to a different topic in a second and nobody seems to ask what models are powering that stuff, but we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, so we've talked about this. You spent your your kind of whole professional career at Admiral, which is really cool. How do you, and I suppose the wider team too, but how is it recruiting in a kind of the relatively small world of Cardiff? Like, because there's obviously like, there's companies in, well, there's, if you're looking for a job in London, there's thousands like Cardiff is a bit of a smaller ecosystem so what is that like in terms of like attracting really good people into work in the data team so I think it's got its pros and cons I think one of the things that really helps us is Admiral's culture I mean it's one it's the reason I've stayed for so long and it's the reason why if you walked around Admiral you would see so many people in the same position you know I thought I was coming for a year I thought this was a stopgap and here I am 20 years later type of stories are hugely common in our business because our culture is it it's a high performing culture but it's one that's all about people so it's all about people liking what they do and actually that makes them do it better and we have a very open culture as well so I think that makes it easier I know you asked about recruitment but what makes it easier is that when we get that talent into the business it's much easier to retain them so we don't get as much um, movement as potentially other companies do and then in, it also helps with attraction, doesn't it? Because you know, we've got won countless awards in terms of you know best company to work for and, and all of the rest of it. The talent pool is smaller in Cardiff, but you know, there's some really great people there. And one of the things that we do a lot of as well is hire for, for culture and for potential as opposed to hiring for skill. And then we train skill because you can do that. That's You, know, you can train somebody how to build a data science model but you can't train them to be curious. So you you have to pick um, what you're hiring for. And then I guess the other point is that the, you know, post-pandemic, the world is very different. So we have people now working all across the UK. Uh, we have very much a hybrid approach to, to that. You know, we don't expect 
people to be in the office a lot. So people who live locally generally come in, we expect them to come into the office about once a week. But yeah, we have people that live in Scotland, we have people that live all over England, and they come in much less frequently. And and that's fine too. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's probably one of the benefits for, because I remember at, at the kind of peak of the pandemic and everyone hiring everywhere, there was a worry that the bigger London companies could just hoover up all the talent in Cardiff or Edinburgh because now they could just hire everywhere. But I suppose the opposite was also true that if you worked in a smaller tech community, that opened up somewhat. And lots of people also wanted to move out of big cities. So like if they could be more rural in a lovely place in Wales somewhere and they could work for Admiral, then like, then awesome. So that that makes a lot of sense. And I really love that you said that you can train someone to build a data science model, but you can't train them to be curious because it's been a really big bugbear of mine for years doing data science recruitment that they were people will be let down on like a kind of technical experience or a, a an industry vertical like you can learn how data works in insurance like in a few months because you'd be embedded in it like but if you can't learn yeah that kind of curiosity and and, and this was like the the willingness to learn as well is, is a big one yeah, exactly that. And you know, we have a whole data academy that we have um, as part of it's one of my teams. And that's what they're there to do. They're there to help people develop and train through their career. So not hiring somebody because they haven't worked in insurance before or because they haven't built that exact type of model before just doesn't make sense. I mean, that stuff is easy if you've got the right attitude and the right attitude to it. And I suppose... Is there quite a lot of people with an admiral that maybe work in a different part of the business and they see what the data team are doing and can they put their hand up quite openly and say, like, I would love to know more about that. Like, I've got some SQL skills. Like, is there somewhere I can learn what you what you and the team do? Is that part of the data academy where, like, internal people can kind of, like, transition? Yeah, so it it will be um is the honest answer so we don't quite have that set up yet so what we focused on so far so we, the academy is relatively new to us it's about a year old and we focused there's five pillars in the academy which is attracting talent engaging the business bringing the community together because when you've got a uh, 650 people in that hub and spoke model sometimes you know, people just don't necessarily know what other people are doing. People don't necessarily know who to go to or who to ask. And so a big part of the Academy's role is about bringing that whole data community together, plus also then engaging the wider business in data. And then you've got the training and development parts. And from training and development, we focused on two things to start with. One is the data community and and what they need to develop in their roles already. And what we call data skills, which is really your kind of data fluency piece, which is for the rest of the organization. And then the natural progression of that will be to start to introduce that bit that says, oh, somebody does that data skills training and actually they go, oh, I really like this idea of data, that there's a path then for them to come across into the data community. Yeah, that's really interesting, a really nice way to do it. That's us for Admiral stuff. What we're going to talk about in the last five minutes is a small topic of uh generative ai um which i also really struggle to say so maybe hope they change it but you posted about it i think literally yesterday um by the time this goes out that's not true but um about having access to, to google's new incarnation of um kind of their well their attempts at generative ai um and that you quite enjoyed playing around with it so 
I'm assuming it's been a big topic in the wider data team, at Admiral, like since, because the last couple of weeks, I mean, I know it's been a few months, but the last couple of weeks seems to have been just like bananas in terms of what's been getting released. What's your, what's your take on that, that kind of landscape? I think it's really interesting. And I think it's, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple of years because there's so much hype about it at the moment. You can only go, you go onto LinkedIn. Every other post, if if not more than that, is about generative AI, and there's some amazing things happening in that space. So you know the the chat GPT models coming out into the public has really opened people's eyes to to that capability. And and now, of course, we're in that world where everybody's racing to increase that capability and to get their product out there, um, like Google with Bard, um, like you said, that I got access to yesterday. And I think ultimately it's going to be hugely transformative for lots of industries, for the way that we work, for lots of things that we do. But I think it'll take longer than people think because it is a huge gap between Google releasing Bard as an experiment or ChatGPT releasing their sort of open offering to how do you make that work in real terms in the business? You know, you can make it work easily for can you write me a job description or can you write me a marketing campaign? Things where you don't have to necessarily give it data. That's pretty easy already today. But as soon as you start thinking about, well, what if I want to bring my customer data to this? Or what if I want to make something customer facing out of this? This is that's a whole different ballgame that's going to take years to work out, I think, before people can be in a position where they're comfortable with that stuff. There's a huge trust element to it when you talk about going into customers. Like for internal experimentation, I can see lots of people having lots of fun. But if your business model is based on customer interaction and you're then like you said, everything's quite early days, putting a lot of trust into something, which they'll happily admit already. I think when you sign up to Bard, it says like the information may not be correct. And like, it's just like a disclaimer they've got. So like there's, there's already probably too many people just like taking it for gospel, if you like. I think the thing that made me more notice it was that I had lots of friends that kind of know I work in the kind of data analytics space, kind of. Um, and they were like, have you heard of this chat GPT thing? And like, these are people that have no interest in technology. They don't care what I do for a living. And they were like, have you heard of this thing? And like, my mum was a teacher and she was obviously like, all the teachers are worried about people using it to write essays and stuff. Like, so like everyone's asking about it, which has just never happened to me in the last almost decade of working in some sort of data world. Like no one's really been bothered to, like when I say I work in AI, they're like robots. Whereas now everyone's like, oh, have you heard of this like large language model? And I'm like, how do you suddenly know what that means? It's amazing, isn't it? And I, and I think it's it's hugely positive, but also it definitely has its downsides that suddenly everybody is running at this thing. But it is amazing how much it's brought people into the AI conversation. Like now everybody has an understanding of what it, what AI is and how it's going to kind of disrupt our world. And it, it's it's I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it was a bold move from OpenAI to to put it out there. It's great. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. I think in stuff like education, it will hopefully have a relatively transformative effect in that maybe the best way to test people isn't to ask them to recall memory on a topic, like maybe do something slightly more creative or give them access to that information before the exam or during the exam, and then they've got to take their own spin on it or something like that. Like it, it's not always the best, like it could be a really, really positive change for a lot of things and not necessarily replace either. It's, it's a new way of doing it. 
Yeah, I, I really hope it is because the exam culture is massively flawed. But there is, I guess, there's a risk that it actually goes the other way because it's much easier to use these kind of technologies for coursework or for project work that actually more and more emphasis gets put on exams when you're in a room and you have no access to technology. Yeah, that's and true. It, it becomes really... more of a recall because you don't have anything. Yeah, that would be so dumb yeah. if they do it that way. And that, that would be really disappointing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it opens the playing field to a better style of examination and learning, like for people that don't do well in that setting. Like it could it could be really beneficial. But yeah, anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. But um, it would be interesting to see how different your answer to that question is in six months time versus 12 to 18 months time so i feel like the pace of development is just like it's insane yeah it it is isn't it i mean there's stuff coming out almost daily i read something and i go oh i didn't know it did that or oh this has happened now and it's yeah Yeah, we actually we got a message on slack from our cto yesterday and i can't remember the product but his comment on the product was this is actually incredible, but also a bit terrifying. And it was like a new like generative AI product that did so- it does something, but he was like a little bit terrifying. And he's quite up to date with this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's boring. Uh, but yeah. he also said it was incredible. So fair play. No, that's it then. Uh, that's, that's me done. I've got no more questions for you. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, it was really good to finally chat. And I really like everything that Admiral seemed to do in the data world. So it was really cool to talk about it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, glad we finally got here. It's great.